This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Ari Perliger, author of the book, American Zealots, Inside Right-Wing Domestic Terrorism. Ari Perliger is a professor and director of the Graduate Program in Security Studies at the School of Criminology and Justice Studies at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. His many publications on political violence include Jewish Terrorism in Israel. Ari, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to write this book? Sure. So even before my arrival to the U.S. in 2008, I was studying uh, far-right politics and far-right extremism in, uh, in other countries, initially in Israel, but also I also engage in the study of, of European far-right and far-right ideology in general. And uh, shortly after I moved to the U.S., I became more and more interested in the unique characteristics and manifestations of the American far right. Uh, Mainly because while the American far right imported many elements from other countries, mainly from the European far right, it developed its own unique characteristics, its own unique tactics, its its own uh, unique mobilization mechanisms, and so on, which were also shaped by the by the specific history of, of the United States. So I felt really uh, intrigued and curious to really dive into and see in what ways really the American far right is unique and in what ways it's really a, another reflection or another extension of far right politics that we see in other countries and in other continents. And the book has two parts, and I wanted to see if you could explain how the book is set up with the first part more looking at the ideologies and the second part having your your data work. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. So in the first section of the book, I really wanted to introduce the reader with the the landscape of the American far right, Uh, to introduce the reader the various ideological streams the various groups and movements that really comprise the American far right. Uh, One of my main objectives was to demonstrate that when we are talking about the American far right, we're not talking about a uniform entity. We are actually talking about a very diverse uh, landscape, which include many different groups that have different uh, ideological uh, focus, that justified their violent practices by using different narratives and different justifications, as well as uh, are inspired by different uh, traditions and different cultures. So I really wanted to uh, demonstrate the reader that if you really want to understand the American far right, you really need to dive into the different groups, different movements, and to understand their unique characteristics and uh, their unique ideological principles. Right, and you you talk about that ideological and um, even structural diversity. What are the types of movements you identified when you went and looked at those different strains? So in general, I was able to identify three major streams or uh, types of groups within the American far right. The first are a... what we can define as the racist groups or the racial groups 
these are groups that really are focusing on white supremacy and they justify uh, white supremacy sentiments and ideologies through uh, various narratives. So we have the traditional white supremacy groups that we're all familiar with, such as the KKK and, uh, and related groups. We also have uh, various neo-Nazi organizations that are really are relying on the traditional national socialist ideology, the way it was developed by the Nazi party in Germany. By the way, many of these American groups also adopt a lot of the uh, practices and, and uh, visuals of the, of the traditional Nazi party. And finally, we have the skinheads, which is a bit of a different uh, movement, nonetheless also embrace uh, very strong and militant white supremacy ideas. Uh, we also have uh, what we can define as anti-government or anti-federal uh, movements and groups most Americans know these groups as, uh, as militias, and many people refer to this group as the militia movement or uh, uh, the patriot movement. And these groups really uh, see the federal government as an hostile entity that uh, is very intrusive in its nature, that has the tendency to violate uh, constitutional rights, that have the tendency to uh, undermine their civil liberties. And many of these groups are also uh, promoting various conspiracy theories about the fact that the federal government is being hijacked by foreign agents and that is trying to uh, basically transform the US into some kind, some kind of a part of a more global political entity. And finally, we also have a more fundamentalist uh, movements or organizations these are, these are groups that uh, justify their white supremacy ideas by the utilizations of religious texts. So they provide their own interpretations of religious texts to justify their xenophobic, racist, and nativist ideas. Probably the most predominant movement with this, within this stream uh, is the Christian identity movement, which uh, is basically is comprised of a multiple independent quote unquote churches, which promote these, uh, this kind of ideological sentiments. And when you looked at some of the historical development of these groups, one of the things that was interesting in a couple of the different movements, you spoke about the co-opting of civil rights language and pseudo-liberal rhetoric in more contemporary white supremacist movements. What does that look like? So I think this is something that started already in the 80s and the 90s when new cadre of leaders became more and more dominant, mainly within the KKK, but also within some other uh, neo-Nazi organizations. And this new leadership really was looking to increase the attractiveness and to increase the appeal of the white supremacy movement uh, to new audiences, more educated, uh, audiences uh, try to uh, attract college kids, college students, uh, and they understood that they also need to try to elevate the image of the movement, to provide the movement more legitimacy, to increase its ability to mobilize more support from wider uh, constituencies. And part of this uh, effort including included also the use of a new uh, rhetorical style that emphasized uh, the need to protect the rights of white people or to protect uh, the rights of, of white Protestants against attempts to uh, undermine, to oppress what they define as, as, as white people. Now, I think it's important to understand that they also were influenced by the civil rights movements and similar uh, civil rights organizations. So th they felt that by using uh, this kind of rhetoric, they can, uh, first of all, uh, present a more uh, moderate image, less of eccentric, less of a, a militant image, but also to attract new audiences. So again, you see a lot, a lot of writings, a lot of texts, a lot of speeches uh, that really emphasizing uh, the need to address what they define as the oppression 
of white people in America, the attempts to, to introduce new policies that, in their eyes, discriminate white people. So, for example, you see a lot of language about affirmative action, a lot of language about immigration policies that, in their eyes, really are aiming uh, at the end of the road to undermine the prominency and the influence of white people in America. And you connect some of that to the idea that some of this rhetoric has become mainstream in some of the political discourse in the the right and how that differs the participation politically of the far right and the right in the U.S. versus and, and you do a comparative analysis to some of the other countries. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I, I think that the language really is uh, aiming to present white people as another another ethnic segment or another, I would say, part of the population that is really fighting for its place within the wider American society. And in many ways, I think that's something that we also see in other countries about the attempt to... A, instill fear from demographic changes or potential demographic changes, as well as a lot of focus on perceived cultural changes that society is going through. So, for example, if you're talking about all the rhetoric about the war on Christmas, for example, right? Nobody is really arguing or promoting the idea that people should not celebrate Christmas or will not say Merry Christmas, but it's really about the integration of more inclusive language to prevent from some people not to feel excluded from this kind of, uh, you know, in, in the overall social environment. Uh, but again, the ability to utilize this kind of example and uh, use them in order to uh, demonstrate allegedly the fact that uh, uh, white Protestant culture is under attack, is being undermined, is being marginalized, is one of the ways in which these groups are hoping to be able to recruit or to mobilize support from people that in the past were not inclined to see themselves as part of the far right or to associate themselves uh, with the far right. And you can see that by, you can see that also in their attempts really to engage with issues that are at the center of our political discourse. So you'll see that most of the contemporary far right groups are focusing on immigration policies. They are focusing on uh, competition in the job market, emphasizing the fact or trying to allude to the fact that immigrants are the main reason that uh, many blue-collar Americans have such a hard time to find jobs and to uh, provide themselves and their families. Despite the fact that we all understand that these arguments have no uh, factual basis, uh, by really integrating themselves into some issues that are really at the core of our political discourse, they are able to gain a lot of legitimacy, a lot of visibility, and also uh, to attract a lot of, of new supporters. So one of the interesting findings in the first part of the book, you look at far-right movements and say, and you see that they have a difficult time enforcing hierarchy and that the level of violence is tied to their success as an organization. What does this mean about the actual power of the leadership of some of these far-right movements? This is really an interesting characteristic of the American far-right that actually existed from the very early stages of the far-right. Because, if, for example, if you're looking at the first iteration of the KKK in the 1860s, one of the reasons that the organization eventually collapsed was the fact that its first leader, Nathan Bedford Forrest, could not really impose its will on the followers you know, in, different, in different places. But uh, I think that when you're looking at, uh, at uh, the history of the American far right, one of the things that are very clear is that it, really, it was never really able to develop the same operational capabilities that other ideological movements were able to develop. So if you compare, for example, the violence that is being produced by the American far right to the violence that is being produced, let's say, by the jihadi movement, for example, you see that overall, again, there's outliers, but overall, 
the violence produced by the American far right is less sophisticated and more marginal. Usually they uh, generate less casualties than other types of terrorism or other types of political violence. And one of the reasons that we see that is because the far right, for many different reasons, was never really able to construct an effective uh, military infrastructure and a formal organization that will allow its groups to uh, perpetrate uh, uh, meaningful attacks or to engage in a systematic campaign of violence. What we've seen for the most part are some sparks or some, some specific outliers. You know, we can talk about Oklahoma City bombings. We can talk about a, a other mass casualty attacks such as El Paso or Pittsburgh. But in most of these cases, these are not these are not attacks or incidents that are part of an ongoing campaign of violence that is being organized by a formal hierarchical organization. That's not the case for the most part with the American far right. One of the reasons for that is not just the decentralized nature of, of many of the groups and movements, but also because they understood that by creating more formal hierarchical organization, they are also becoming more vulnerable. For example, many of the far right uh, many, many of the white supremacy organizations that were very dominant in the 90s and the early 2000s eventually collapsed because uh, they cannot really uh, uh, respond to or they were not able to sustain the damages that they were had to pay as a result of civil lawsuits that, were, uh, that they lost in, in the courts. Uh, also, I think many of them understood that by... Uh, structuring themselves in a more formal hierarchical uh, structure, they are becoming much more vulnerable to penetration from law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and in general, it will be easier for law enforcement to undermine their, uh, their activities. For all of these reasons, already in the 90s, one of the most prominent leaders of the, of the movement, Louis Beam, started to promote the idea of, of a leaderless resistance. So, uh, this is really a feature that is is fairly consistent throughout the history of the of the American far right. So, in the second part of the book, you do a lot of really interesting data analysis, and wanted to just ask if you could talk a little bit about how you put together your data set and just how you went about setting up that analysis portion. When I started to study the American far right, one of the things that were very clear to me from uh, the very beginning is the fact that there's no really good data. There, there were some data sets that generally tried to cover domestic terrorism, but they were really focusing on the most uh, visible acts of violence, and they missed a lot of more local or a lot of uh, acts of violence that attracted less attention. So there were a lot of uh, events that they were not able to capture. Additionally, it was very clear to me that uh, I can I cannot also I, I cannot really rely just on, for example, the FBI aid crime statistics. Again, because uh, there's uh, the definition of aid crime can change from a state to state, and also in many cases there's a preference not to designate a specific incident as a, as a hate crime for multiple reasons. So it. So at some point, I arrived at the conclusion that I need to construct my own database. So for almost two years, I worked with a team of, of assistants, and we basically constructed our own database, which included thousands of incidents. Today, our data sets goes all the way to 2017, and we've documented more than 5,500 incidents. And the main reason that we're able to capture so many incidents is because we're not just focusing on those attacks that uh, generated fatalities uh, and casualties, but also on the many attacks that were more focusing on generating fear or to instill fear among specific communities or acts against uh, property and acts of vandalism that may be, may be perceived by some as marginal incidents or incidents that, that are not really worthwhile to track. But nonetheless, we, we felt that it's really important to identify these events as well and document them as well. And I just want to add that while we sometimes we tend to, to underestimate the impact of these kind of acts of vandalism, nonetheless, these incidents can have a tremendous impact on 
the affected communities. For example, the many attacks against religious facilities, such as synagogues or temples or, or churches and, and mosques and so on, these are not just uh, places of worship. They are also, in many ways, they symbolize uh, the community. These are the places where the community congregate, where many of the communal activities are being conducted. This is really a, a place with a lot of symbolic importance for these communities. So when these facilities are being attacked, they really attack, it's really more than attack just against a building. It's really attack against, against you know, the, the social fabric of the community in many ways. So it's really important to remember that also attacks against property or acts of vandalism may have a significant impact on the affected communities. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I found it really interesting that you included those hate crimes and vandalism incidents in with your analysis of more commonly understood acts of terrorism, especially as you talk more about the cost-benefit analysis that some of these folks may be doing when they're selecting their targets. Do you think that there's room for more of this exploration and terrorism studies more broadly of expanding and looking at these kind of biased crimes and and lower level acts of symbolic, not necessarily even violence, but property incidents as part of a larger studies? I do. And I think that one of the elements that we are missing about terrorism is that, that it is really symbolic slash psychological violence. In many cases, the terrorists really do not care so much about how many victims they were able to, uh, uh, to hurt or the overall number of casualties of their attacks. What they really care about is about the psychological impact of their attacks, how much they were able to uh, impact a specific constituency or a specific community. Eventually, terrorists really wants to maximize the symbolic and psychological impact of their attacks. That will enable them to uh, promote their ideology, to publicize their views, and to really impact uh, communities and eventually also political leaders. So the way terrorism really can win is not by generating necessarily just a high, high number of victims, but also by enhancing its symbolic and psychological impact that eventually force communities and political leaders to, to make concessions, you know, sometimes, or to, to surrender to the demands of the terrorists. And, and it's not always something that is being done intentionally, but it's something that it's, it's almost an unavoidable uh, process. So for example, when there's a community that suffers from a series of anti-Semitic events and a series of, you know, of, of violent attacks that are being driven by white supremacy, eventually that will impact the behaviors and the practices of uh, minorities that lives in these communities. They'll feel uh, less able to participate in community events. They'll be less visible. They'll be less comfortable to uh, practice their beliefs and their, and their way of life. So in many ways, through this kind of, of, of attacks or through this kind of symbolic violence, these groups really try to marginalize and to force these minority groups to disappear from the public sphere. And in many ways, they try to give these minorities the sense that they're really not part of the collective, that they're not part of society, which eventually that's, that's their major ideological argument, right? That these people are not really Americans, they're not really part of us, that they should not have access to the same rights and to the same uh, benefits and so on and so forth. So I, I think we need really to uh, appreciate more the way that terrorism and this kind of targeted violence uh, through its symbolic power can really change behaviors, practices, and eventually also policies. So 
again, terrorist groups, for the most part, don't have the manpower, the resources, the ability to, uh, to force government to surrender. But what they can do through their psychological and symbolic impact, change the way people think about these issues or force people to change their behaviors and in this way to promote their views and, and their goals. I wanted to get you to talk about the importance of untangling some of these different uh, movements. And this connects to the data analysis you did. And I'm thinking we, we haven't really touched on some of the work you talked about with the anti-abortion movement, for example. And you see in that particular example, targeting is very specific. It, but you also just have these really interesting observations that different movements behave in different ways and they have differences in their attack types and their targeting. Were any of those surprising? So first of all, you are, you are completely correct. We see that there's a clear association between the specific ideological tendencies and the target selection of many of these groups. Also, we see that different groups also have specific tactics that they prefer to utilize and to, and to use. And this is important First of all, it's important, I think, from a practical perspective. I think law enforcement practitioners can learn a lot from understanding the unique operational characteristics of different groups and how their ideology leads them to choose specific tactics or specific weapons or to operate in specific locations and so on. But it's also important because I think it really improves our ability to understand how ideology eventually shapes all the other components of these violent groups and movements, how they organize, how they operate. And, and by the way, this is not something that is necessarily unique to the far right, right? If you're looking, for example, at other types of ideological groups, such as, let's say, uh, violent environmental groups, you see that they also have a very specific way in which ideology shaped their target selection. But this is also important because Again, as I mentioned before, we have the tendency, and definitely law enforcement and policymakers really have the tendency to basically group all these different movements under one category, see them as some kind of a one subculture and uh, argue that they influence each other, they overlap with each other, so eventually it doesn't really matter uh, that, that they have their own unique feature and so on. And this is something that I try to counter through this book and through my analysis. And I think it's until we'll be able really to understand the complexity of this phenomenon, we'll not be able to develop effective uh, countermeasures. Eventually addressing all these groups as some kind of an extension of, a, of, a, of the same thing, eventually will lead us to look for this kind of a catch-all policies that eventually don't address really any of the unique characteristics of these movements. So for example, if you're talking about the militia groups, right? It's not just important to address the fact that these groups have much more operational experience because the high portion of former law enforcement and veterans among their ranks, but also because, because of the unique composition of their members, they can generate more legitimacy and more trust from the American people, right? When when you are a member of a group that includes so many people who served in the military or were law enforcement in the past, it's easier for you to gain legitimacy to present yourself as a, someone that is, you know, is, is a legitimate part of society and so on. So, so that means that these groups, if we really want to counter their narrative, we need to understand that the unique characteristics of their members have a lot of appeal to American people, that many of them are fairly, you know, very appreciated of the work of law enforcement and definitely veterans, right? And so we need to adopt a various a different strategy if we want to counter their narrative and we want to basically uh, prevent them from continuing recruiting and mobilizing all support. When you're dealing with skinheads, for example, you need to utilize a completely different tactic. Skinheads is really uh, a, a neo-Nazi slash socioeconomic movement. It's basically, it's a... It's, uh, it's the far right version of blue collar youth rebellion against capitalist elites, against uh, the capitalist system and so on. So again, they demand a completely different type of response. And um, eventually if we don't do these distinctions, we cannot develop effective response. 
Another thing you found in your data was some connections between political changes, elections, and the composition of the legislative branch. Indeed, I think that one of the things that are very clear is that the political environment has an impact on the level and the intensity of, of far-right violence. We, one of the things that are very clear from my analysis is the importance of empowerment. It's very clear that when members of far-right group feel empowered, they are more inclined to engage in violent and militant activities. And we see that in, in many different ways. For example, uh, the data shows that we see more anti-abortion violence actually after pro-life decisions of the Supreme Court. When pro-life activists, especially militant pro-life activists, feel that their views and their positions enjoy the legitimacy of the judicial system as well as the uh, legislative system. So we, we really see that they are more willing to engage in violence in order to enforce uh, their views regarding uh, abortions. We also see that when we're looking at what happened after the 2016 elections. Usually after elections, we see a decline in the level of violence, mainly because there's a decline in the political competition the, the overall political environment le is less contentious, is less toxic. Usually things are usually come down after elections. Uh, but this did not happen in 2017 and 2018. We actually witnessed an increase in the level of violence. And the main reason for that is because many of these uh, far-right groups or many members of these far-right groups see their views, their sentiments being uh, expressed by major political leaders uh, from, you know, the mainstream of the political system. So they feel empowered. They feel that they have the backing of a major political party, that they have the backing of an actual constituency. So they feel that they have more legitimacy to engage in militant, sometimes violent activities. And we also see that by the fact that, at least when we're looking at the data, places where uh, conservatives our, our uh, political dominances are actually states where we see higher levels of, of violence. In other words, there's a correlation between the state level violence and the, the political prominency or political dominance of conservatives in that specific state. So I think that all these different evidence eventually leads to one conclusion that when the far right feel empowered in the sense that his views, his sentiments uh, are getting support and are being expressed in the, by the political leadership or in the judicial system, they feel more comfortable, more empowered to engage in violence. Does the, do those political changes affect different types of far right movements differently? I know in the book you talk about the decline of the KKK around the same time that Reagan came to power, which would um, which would be kind of the opposite of the empowerment piece. But not all far right groups had that same experience at that time period. Are, are there things we can learn from that? So, so I think that eventually, again, I think that political changes within. And the conservative movements or the conservative political landscape also eventually had an impact on the far right. These are not completely disconnected. So, for example, a, a, the rise of a more a religiously oriented far right, that means right-wing ideas that are being justified and are being promoted through the lenses of relig specific religious convictions or specific religious frameworks also provided a lot of empowerment and a lot of boost to groups that really promoted these sentiments by utilizing a religious or religious-based justifications or more fundamentalist reasoning to their far-right ideas. The KKK on the other end, that for many years really focused on the idea that the white race is biologically is superior to other races or promoted the very crude, very basic uh, uh, ideas of white supremacy, eventually lost its appeal because these are not views or not type of 
arguments that can really attract and can be perceived as reasonable or legitimate by potential followers. You make a couple of observations about attacks on LGBTQ communities as standing out. Could you talk a little bit about what you found in the data on those types of attacks? I think this is one of the most interesting findings. We definitely see a fluctuation in the tendency of uh, far-right activists to attack LGBTQ uh, targets, members of the LGBTQ community or some of some other targets that are associated with the community. And I have to admit that I don't think that we really have a good theory for explaining this fluctuation. So, for example, we do see higher levels of violence against the LGBTQ in 2012, 2013, 2014. And I'm guessing that because gay marriage was such a high profile issue, that really generated a lot of attentions from far right activists and we've seen more violence against LGBTQ. Once that was settled by the Supreme Court and this issue became less uh, prominent and less visible, we do see some kind of decrease in the level of violence. But again, we see just recently, we see another rise in the level of violence. And in general, we see also, I think in the late 90s, also some kind of a spike in the level of violence against LGBTQ community. And this is one of those things where as much as I was, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, sometimes you just, you know, you look at the data and you just acknowledge that, okay, this is something that I cannot really explain. We really need to look into that more specifically. Maybe... It's really about the types of LGBT community uh, targets that are being attacked. Maybe we really need to focus more on uh, the locations or the geographical areas where we see more attacks against LGBTQ communities. So, for example, one of the things that we definitely see is that attacks against LGBTQ are happening more in what we can define as blue states, mainly because this is the place where there's more opportunities to attack these kind of targets. If you go to the South, LGBTQ targets are less, usually are still less visible, especially to go to the deep south. That's not the case in New York or Boston or in, in more or California. In these places, if someone really wants to attack a, a gay bar or other targets that are associated with LGBT community, it's easier to identify these, these targets and to perpetrate an attack. And I think that is also related to the broader picture, which we see when you're looking at the geographical distribution of far-right attacks. In contrast to our expectation, uh, most of the attacks are not happening in the Deep South. Actually, most of the attacks are happening in, again, what we usually consider as blue, blue states, more progressive states, more, again, I don't want to offend anyone, more tolerant states. Because these are states that experience such a high rate of diversification, that creates more, uh, in some cases, more contentious environment and more opportunities for those who want to operate against these kind of targets, against minorities, LGBTQ, against religious, uh, specific religious groups, and so on and so forth. Another reason that we see, uh, I'm guessing, more attacks in these kind of areas is the fact that in many cases, these states are not really blue or not really progressive, right? So, and what do I mean is that if we're looking at the political landscape in the United States, what we do do not have blue states and red states. We have blue cities or blue urban areas and a lot of red in between, right? So you can talk about New York State, but New York State, it's New York, which is, fairly progressive, very uh, liberal. And then you have upstate New York, which is very different in terms of its political culture. Sa- the same goes to the, all this vast of land between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Or if, even if you go to Western Mass, you see the same thing, right? So now what happened is a very interesting process. So a lot of minority groups that in the past were residing mainly in the inner cities, as a result of Uh, upwards economic mobilization, they start to move to the suburbs. They start to move to to the more upscale communities around the big metropolitan areas in New York suburbs, Boston suburbs, Philly suburbs, and so on. Now, 
these are places that just a few years ago, these are places that were very homogeneous in terms of their ethnic and religious uh, composition. And now suddenly they experience high level of diversification. And this very dramatic and quick demographic changes create a lot of tensions between the more veteran communities or the veteran uh, population and the new arrivals, which in many cases bring new culture, new rel religious practices, which are very different than the, than the veteran population. And that creates a lot of tension. So what we see is really that a lot of the violence is actually occurring in the suburbs, exactly the places where other residents feel threatened, feel marginalized because they're very crude diversifications of their communities. And I think our main challenge is to uh, develop policies that will facilitate more effective integration uh, in these communities. I still remember, you know, I lived in upstate New York and I still remember the outbreak of anti-Semitic language and acts of vandalism that happened in my community as a result of the arrival of, of, of new residents that had, you know, came from different backgrounds, different culture, different, different so on. And I, and I didn't live like up really in the northern parts of New York. I still was like an hour drive from the city, but it was already a very different environment. So I think, I think we need to be conscious about these, these processes and why they lead to situations where the violence is really occurring exactly in the areas that are experiencing this ongoing diversification of our country. I seem to remember that you found really specific demographic changes that were really tied to this. It, it wasn't maybe what people would think. Do you, do you want to talk yeah. more about that? So that was another very interesting finding. So the single most, in, most uh, significant predictor of violence is actually the portion of Asian American and Hispanic population the increase rate of these specific communities is the best predictor for a rise in the violence. Now, more research needs to, be, needs to be done, but my assumption is that these specific minorities represent a more immediate competition in the job market, in, uh, uh, in various uh, uh, mid-level and upper-level jobs. I think that uh, the diversification of communities, especially when, when people see the increase in the Asian American and the Hispanic population, I think that creates a lot of economic anxiety, a lot of, I guess, also social anxiety, which drives some of, of the more veteran populations to the, you know, to the ranks of the far right, or at least make them more willing to accept and embrace uh, this kind of extremist racist views, which sometimes are not really racist, but more uh, very hostile and very toxic towards minorities, towards immigrants, and anyone who represent for them as a threat to their socioeconomic status. And this is, again, this is not new. This is something that we know that the far right usually really try to mobilize support by playing on the economic and social anxiety of potential constituencies. I wanted to also ask you about spontaneous attacks. What did you see related to those in, in the data that there may be a little different? One of the interesting things that I was able to identify in the data is the fact that while we as people who are studying terrorism have a very, usually very clear view of how people are being radicalized and then gradually are becoming more and more involved in militant and violent activities until they are becoming full-fledged members of these uh, far-right violent groups. What I found is that a lot of those violent incidents are not being perpetrated by long-time members of far-right groups, are not a result of a long-term planning and preparations, but actually a spontaneous acts of violence that are being triggered by some kind of occasional stimuli or, or sometime, something that really trigger the violent response. And uh, it was, for me at least, it was really important to see what are the specific characteristics of these 
spontaneous perpetrators. And what we found, for example, is that this kind of spontaneous attacks usually occur in more affluent areas. And my assumption is that people in these affluent areas do not have really access to more organized far-right groups or far-right associations. So they cannot really be part of an actual group or an actual movement. So when eventually something happens that triggers their hatreds or their animosity that leads them eventually to react violently, usually that happens out of the blue. You don't, usually you don't see any kind of real early signs that these specific individuals may act violently. Uh, I think that another thing that we found is that most of these spontaneous attacks are being perpetrated by individuals that are usually younger, if coming from lower socioeconomic background. And I think that in many cases, uh, these are individuals that uh, probably have less to lose by engaging in these kind of spontaneous acts of violence, which usually they don't have any kind of exit strategy. They don't have any planning what to do in case they are being caught or anything similar. So I think in overall, it really represents a substate of perpetrators that are really operating in a way that is not conforming to the usual model that we have about the way people are being radicalized and becoming eventually part or members of violent groups. It's kind of related to, I was trying to find this in your in your book because I wanted to ask you about this concept of masculine exclusiveness. And you talk about that as a motivating factor. Can you tell us what that is and how that relates to some of this? So I think that masculine sentiments were always part of the American far right, as well as, you know, in many non-American far-right groups, you know, the KKK, for example, never, until very recently, never really admitted women to the movement, uh, for example. Uh, but what we see, I think, in the last couple of decades, I would say, and definitely much more in, uh, intensively in the last few years, is the utilization of uh, anti-feminist male supremacy uh, rhetoric by these groups. So I think that the leaders of many of the contemporary far-right groups believe that by utilizing a, a rhetoric that emphasizes the oppression of, of the white male, that emphasizes the anti-feminist, anti-women, anti-women empowerment sentiments, it will be easier for them to mobilize potential recruits or potential followers. I think they also understand that many people are being attracted to the far right because they have difficulties in adapting to this new uh, power structure or a uh, new power structure between genders in modern societies. I think that the integration of new practices and new norms into gender relations as you can imagine, uh, present a lot of difficulties to, to a lot of young males that were never really educated or trained or prepared to deal with these kind of, of new norms and new practices. And so they feel very frustrated. They feel very detached from this new culture. And they find a refugee in this kind of far-right communities that emphasize, again, anti-feminist, anti-women, a... a and, and, and strong musc masculine sentiments and, and basically give legitimacy to their feelings that they are being basically oppressed as males in this new, uh, in this new cultural, in this new uh, environment. And I think that in many ways that also, I think, reflects a failure of our educational system, of many communities to address and to help young members of these communities to better understand, better integrate, and better embrace this new you know, power structure between genders in, in modern societies. I think it's, it's something that should be a major concern for anyone who is involved in countering uh, the far right. Because if, if you'll ask me what is right now the most effective mobilization instruments of these groups, it's exactly that, this kind of masculine anti-women rhetoric that truly 
exploit very raw emotional triggers among these youth. So yes, everybody are focusing on incels and, uh, and the classic manosphere. However, we need to remember that a lot of the more uh, ideological misogynist uh, rhetoric today is really promoted and being disseminated by uh, far-right groups. And in many ways, they are really exploiting this kind of, of, of new trend. And as long as they'll feel that this is an effective way to recruit new members, they'll continue to do that. And look at the Proud Boys. They're first and for all, they define themselves as a chauvinist group. So from the beginning, they define themselves through their specific uh, ideology about gender relations. In light of your research and your findings, what recommendations would you make to policymakers of how to address some of these things that you've observed? I think it's important to, to know that there's no silver bullet. There's no one solution or there's no one policy that can really, by itself, really can, can eliminate far-right extremism and, and violence. Also, I think it's important to understand that this is probably a component of the American political culture that will always stay with us. For the last 150 years, we always had these components within our political system, within our political landscape. So I think we need to make the effort to minimize its impact, to minimize its ability to mobilize support, to try to undermine its ability to exercise violence. But I, I'm not sure if, if it is realistic uh, to think that we'll be able to completely eliminate these ideological strands. Saying that, I do think that there's some things that we can do. First of all, I think that we need really to uh, empower individuals and communities to seek a civilian mechanism to uh, demand accountability from these organizations. Which, which means that every time there's a perpetrator that is associated with a specific group that perpetrates an attack, he needs to be accountable and the group needs to be accountable. The fact that we're able to lead to the uh, uh, elimination of so many groups through civil lawsuits should show us that this is probably a very effective way. And for some reason, for the last decade or so, we don't see that uh, this specific mechanism utilized. So basically use the... Uh, legal tools that we already have in order to make all these groups accountable to what they do, to the hatred that they disseminate, to the empowerment uh, of their members. And, and, and I think that will create much more uh, reluctancy by these groups to directly support people who wants to engage in violent uh, operations. Secondly, I think we need to uh, develop much more effective uh, counter-narrative in this marketplace of ideas, right? I think we need to understand and to gain a better understanding how their narratives evolve, how their conspiracy theories, how, how ideas really evolve, are being disseminated and gaining prominency in this uh, ideological, ideological landscape and how we can react very quickly in order to address these narratives, in order to address these conspiracy theories and in order to provide some kind of a counter response to it. So we need to have both a mechanism that will identify quickly, quickly spreading narratives and have the mechanism also to develop some kind of a counter argument. We have tried to do that in the case of the jihadists. It was not successful for many different reasons. But since here we are really focusing on domestic groups, that we are much more familiar with our culture, we're much more familiar with the people that are being, that are part of these, of these movements. I do believe that we can have that we have better capabilities to develop this kind of a, a counter narratives. And finally, I do think that we need also to think about a set of a legal and operational mechanism that will undermine their operational capabilities. So, for example, closing all the loopholes regarding gun ownership and gun purchases and and so on. We, we have eventually to develop a much better system to monitor and supervise the dissemination of firearms in our society. What's going on right now is something that it's not really manageable. It's not a coincidence 
that many of these places of congregations of far-right activists, it's our gun shows or firearms exhibitions. There's a reason for that. It's part of their subculture these days. So we need to develop a better mechanism to control that. And I understand that there are significant constitutional challenges, and there, but, but I still believe that there's still a lot that can be done in order to, on one hand, to preserve the Second Amendment, on the other end, have a much better ability to track, supervise, and monitor uh, firearms. You can still allow people to, to bear arms. It doesn't say anything about the ability to monitor and supervise these arms. As well as, I think we need to be uh, much more aggressive in preventing from civilian associations to engage in military training. There's no reason why civilian associations will engage in military training. They don't need to defend any borders. They don't need to uh, defend us from foreign nations who have a strong military. And uh, actually, after the Oklahoma City bombing, there were a, a wave of anti-military training legislations in many states. Since then, it was relaxed. I think we should go back to that. I think we should find ways to prevent from civilian associations from developing military capabilities. There's no reason to allow that, really. And again, I don't think it's really related to the Second Amendment. People can bear arms. It doesn't mean that they should be allowed to conduct military training. I think we need to think about all these elements. Also, I think there's a lot of concerns about the usage of WMD. So I think we this is definitely another element, weapons of mass destruction. We have some examples in the past in, in which some far-right groups have tried to use chemical and biological agents to perpetrate attacks. So this is something that always needs to be in the back of our mind uh, to be able to monitor and to supervise that. So I think, I think it's, it's really a, a combination of measures that hopefully will enable us to, to counter uh, these groups. But if there's one thing that really must change is we cannot allow these groups to continue to gain legitimacy from our political leadership, especially from the mainstream political echelon. Because eventually, if you want to be able to enhance your, to enhance and to use more effective and more powerful measures against these kind of groups, you really need to find ways to delegitimize their views, their ideology, and their ability to, to mobilize support. And as long as they enjoy support from the mainstream political system, that's not, that is not really feasible. I'm not even talking about the fact that that empowers them, the fact that it gives them more uh, public legitimacy, that it gives them more visibility, and so on. So this is another thing that must change if you really want to counter their, uh, their expansion. Well, Ari, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing with us what you're working on now? Sure, I'll be happy to. Uh, so I'm, I'm right now involved in two major projects. One of them is looking into uh, misogynist ideological violence. So I'm not just looking into the info subculture, but I also look into how far-right groups promote misogynist violence, but I also look into how fundamentalist communities as well promote this kind of violence. I'm looking at the rhetoric, I'm looking at the organization of this kind of violence, and in general, I'm really trying to identify all the various types of groups and movements that promote ideas of male supremacy. So this is one thing I'm doing right now. And the second project that it's really very different from what I've done so far, I'm looking at the nexus of climate change and political violence especially in developing countries. So my major argument is that communities that are being impacted more severely from climate change usually have less capabilities and less resources to address, uh, address acts of militancy, acts of violence, different types of criminal activities and so on. And we already know that there is some correlation between uh, climate events and increase in crime rates and so on. But I'm interested more specifically to look how uh, various types of uh, climatic events and uh, various types of communities eventually how they are being impact how how various climate climatic events impact communities and especially the level of ideological crimes and ideological violence within these communities so it's it's a fairly uh, comprehensive project that really tries to identify all the pathways that connect climate change and political violence and, uh, and ideological violence, et cetera. 
Those sound like great projects and best of luck. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks again for inviting me. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. American Zealots Inside Right-Wing Domestic Terrorism by Ari Perliger is available now from Columbia University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.